Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Robert Chazen, who has served as the Scheuer Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University for the past three decades and is the author of numerous books. Uh, we'll be discussing, though, actually an essay that he wrote um, in a book. Uh, it will be, the topic will be about the trial of the Talmud in Paris in 1240. And there's a lengthy essay uh, that he wrote in there together with the translation of the Hebrew sources and the Latin sources. So thank you, Professor Chazen, for joining me. Pleasure. So I think we should start off by discussing just the, 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 the French jury at the time in the 13th century and, you know, give, set the background a little bit over there and, and the overall attitude displayed towards them, you know, leading up to this trial. Great. Um, let me start by indicating, and this, this may seem a little jarring, to uh, many of your listeners, uh, Northern French Jewry was a fairly recent development. That is to say, Jews had been settled in the southern areas of Europe from time immemorial, really from biblical times. Northern Europe was not an area of significant Jewish settlement at all. And this was true for the German territories, all uh, for England, all of the northern sectors of Europe. Why? Because these were backward areas. These were the areas that the southern Europeans were concerned they were concerned largely at peop, at keeping out uh, the people of the north whom they viewed as primitive and dangerous. So Southern European Jewry roots all the way back to biblical times, Northern Europe essentially free of Jews, down to about the year 1000. Uh, at that point, um, Northern Europe begin, began to change. And many, many uh, students of medieval history have defined the elements in the change, but they can't really explain why things began to change. They can tell you um forests were cut down there was more arable land uh, to grow food the population increased cities increased uh, a very effective governments began to emerge and at that point for the first time northern europe kind of beckoned to jews to come and settle. Or let me put that differently. Certain elements in Northern Europe beckoned to Jews. And because things were changing there and the economy was developing, for the first time, Jews began to indicate 
uh, an interest in settling in this rapidly developing area. Now, what this means, the important point of this is that Jews in Northern Europe were essentially newcomers in a Christian society. They were essentially the only significant non-Christian group in society. It wasn't like uh, areas of the South, Spain, for example, where there was a significant Jewish minority and a significant Muslim minority. Jews, these were two negative features of Jewish life. Jews were newcomers and Jews were the only major uh, non-Jewish, non-Christian element in society. What this meant was that Jews faced a lot of popular hostility. Some of the rulers wanted them to come and settle because they needed to build up the urban population and Jews were urbanized people and brought with them very significant economic skills. Uh, the church had a well-established document doctrine, and this is going to play into the story we're going to tell, for the church, Jews had a right to live peacefully and safely in Christian societies, comma, but with a capital B-U-T, they had to be precluded from doing any harm to Christian society. They couldn't attempt to draw Christians out of Christianity into Judaism. They couldn't in any way uh, cast aspersions on Christianity. So it was a combination of protection and limitation. And pretty obviously, the trial of the Talmud that took place in the middle of the 13th century represents very much the limitation aspect, and we can go into detail. So it's a new community. It's a community that's held at arm's length. It's a community that's suspected the way newcomers at all times including the times in which we live, uh, are uh, suspected and often distanced. And uh, Jews had to make the best of it. And they did make, I want to emphasize, they did make the best of it. What we call Ashkenazic Jewry these days is really a reflection of the fact that despite the obstacles that I've indicated, uh, the Jewish population continued to grow. And so if, let's say in the year 1000, Northern European Jews were practically non-existent, 500 years later, 
it was the Northern European Jews uh, constituted a significant element, not 50%, but we don't know exactly, but a significant element on the world Jewish scene. And subsequently, like in the 19th century, Ashkenazic Jews became 80 or 85% of world Jewish population. So it was ultimately a success story in terms of Jewish settlement, but a settlement and flourishing, but it wasn't simple and it wasn't easy. And the trial of the Talmud is a very nice example of some of the difficulties. Right. So I think the first uh, thing, so like you said, they were tolerated, but then they flourished. You had Rashi and the Balitosis that came after, which is at this time. But right. I think something worth exploring is, and you know, this is going to lead right into the, our talk is so, you know, we, you kind of mentioned the overall church doctrine, but towards them, but, and they were tolerated, but what happened gradually as we got to 1240 that, and why did it happen that suddenly there's this trial, suddenly the, the, the Talmud wasn't a new thing. And suddenly there's this trial and, and the, the whole aftermath about what, and we'll discuss about what happened. Excellent. Uh, it is important to emphasize that the leaders of the church had long known of the Talmud and toleration of the Talmud was an outgrowth of the broader toleration of Jews having the right to live according to their own Jewish views. That was the toleration part of the church doctrine. Uh, what happened to change this? Uh, let me say there are a few things. Number one, by the 13th century, Northern European Christian society had emerged very vigorously in the cultural area. They, the Northern, the Northern Europeans had created great cultural centers, the universities. Uh, Northern Europeans had recovered a lot of the legacy of Greece and Rome uh, translating particularly Greek materials into Latin so that they could read them. Uh, and in the process had also begun some of the a minority, but an important minority of churchmen uh, began to master Hebrew and thus uh, to read Tanakh, through Latin translate, uh, old Latin translations, and seem some even improved Latin translations. Uh, more importantly, for our purposes, they began to actually read and translate 
into Latin important segments of the Talmud. In other words, the toleration of the Talmud previously had been largely the toleration of an unknown document. Now it became a known document. There was another factor in it becoming a known document, and that is that by the 13th century, there were occasional Jews who left the Jewish fold to enter the Christian fold and brought with them uh, traditional knowledge of Hebrew and Jewish sources. The key figure in the trial of the Talmud from the church's side was a convert from Judaism to Christianity named Nicholas Donan. Uh, he obviously had been at some level a knowledgeable Jew. Can't tell exactly to what extent, but certainly had a traditional uh, Jewish education, which meant um, knowledge of both Tanakh and Talmud. Uh, what exactly moved him isn't clear, but what is clear is that this is someone who's not speaking out of ignorance. And he appeared at the papal court uh, and suggested, by the way, it's also not clear how exactly he would have gotten the reception, the positive reception that he got, but he brought to the papal court a charge. And the charge was that the Talmud was a work that broke the limitations on Jewish behavior, that in effect said very damning things about Christianity and... kind of directed Jews to uh, distance themselves from Christianity and their Christian neighbors. Uh, the Pope at the time, Gregory IX, he was um, a very effective Pope and a very activist Pope. And he reacted to this charge. You know, if you try to put yourself back in his circumstances, here's this book that had long been tolerated, and now a Jew, a former Jew, is suggesting that this is a dangerous book that, in fact, shouldn't be tolerated. As I said, Pope Gregory IX was an activist. He wrote letters to essentially all the major uh, kingdoms 
of Europe and urged them uh, to investigate these charges. Um, almost nobody did, with the exception of the King of France. Now, why should the King of France have been especially receptive? Because the King of France was an especially an especially pious Christian. And so when he heard about this, uh, he responded actively and aggressively. There was a second factor as well, and that was that by the 1230s, uh, Paris had become one of the great intellectual centers. Again, remember what I said about uh, the rapid development in all respects, economically, culturally, intellectually, of Northern Europe. Paris had become the home of one of the great universities. That meant that there was a lot of, there were a, a lot of intellectual uh, leaders who were in a position to think through this new issue that the Pope was presenting to them. Uh, what emerged was, you know, stepping back from it, a decision the Pope has ordered us to investigate the Talmud because the Pope has been presented by evidence that it's a book that has been tolerated but shouldn't be tolerated uh, and in effect uh, the result was a trial. Um, it was a serious legal undertaking. Um, material was gathered. One of the sets of material, the Latin materials in this book uh, that you mentioned at the outset, uh, and it's not a translation of that whole volume, but there's a, a volume, a Latin volume, uh, in today's Paris uh, Bibliothèque Nationale, National Library, that is hundreds of pages of translations of Talmudic material. In other words, the Christian scholars in Paris really took this on as a serious matter. Uh, it's an amazing achievement. So on top of what Nicholas Donan, the convert 
from Judaism to Christianity might have brought with him, what he brought was supplemented hugely by these translations uh, from the Talmud itself. People have examined, the Jewish scholars have examined the translations and find them to be quite remarkable. And again, I emphasize Paris had emerged as a great center. Uh, the trial involved, uh, I'm using trial language quite purposely. The Talmud uh, trial involved a prosecutor, essentially Nicholas Donan, armed with his own knowledge and almost certainly some of these Latin translations, and a series of witnesses on behalf of the Talmud. Obviously, the Talmud isn't a person that can be uh, the accused, so there had to be witnesses, and the witnesses, this was serious, uh, the witnesses weren't weak figures. Uh, they were well-known northern French rabbis. By this time, we're well past Rashi. We're well into the phenomenon of the Tosafot. Uh, just as Paris had emerged as a center of Christian uh, knowledge, uh, it was a center of Jewish knowledge as well. And the churchmen organizing the trial uh, found reputable witnesses and brought them. And that was what went on uh, at the trial. It, it was not, during the Middle Ages, it's another phenomenon entirely, there were religious disputations where Christians, uh, Christian thinkers would challenge Jewish thinkers. This was not a disputation. This was an actual legal trial. Uh, when it was over, there, had, there was a jury. The jury was scholars, consisted of scholars from the, the great University of Paris. The scholars came to the judgment that the accusations against the Talmud had been substantiated. And again, keeping to this sense of a trial that in light of substantiation of the charges, the punishment was clear. 
the Talmud had to be destroyed. And what happened, famous incident, was the burning of cartloads of Talmuds gathered by royal functionaries from all over the Northern French kingdom. Um, obviously a great tragedy uh, for the Jews themselves. Uh, was this a factor in the eventual decline of Jewish intellectual activity, particularly the, the kind of activity that we have in the Tosafot, it's hard to tell, but it seems reasonable to think so. So also another thing, we'll get back to more of the, the burning of, is that they were handwritten and there was no printed books at that time. So we can imagine about how, how much work went into that, that they just burned. Absolutely correct and important to think about. You know, so many 21st century Jews have, you know, a big collection uh, of Talmuds in their homes. Imagine what it takes to copy one copy of the Talmud and then to think about the year or the point you make is critical. Think about the number of hours of labors. I mean, the figure is astronomical uh, that were consigned to the flames in Paris. Right. So I think we should go back a little bit to the to the trial. So we should maybe perhaps illustrate, um, perhaps if we'll, you know, what were the charges that were leveled? As you said, Dunnan seemed to have. Um, we could discuss him a little bit, but he seems to have a substantial knowledge and he knew uh so the, whether it was him or others they actually knew uh, things and what were the charges that they leveled against it uh okay i'm gonna f uh, let me begin with the charge the accusation that lasts the long longest in a, a few minutes i'll indicate what i mean by that uh there is material in the Talmud, and there was at this at in the thirteenth century much more of this material that is directly negative about the major figures of Christianity, obviously, particularly Jesus uh but to a certain extent, uh, his mother Mary and some of the other immediate fig gospel figures, Jews were aware of the gospel material, uh, had been aware for a very long time, 
had written very harshly negative things. These are, these are things, by the way, that one can't find in contemporary versions of the Talmud. And let's make a point of picking up on that. Uh, there was material. It was carefully documented in the trial. And what it represented was the sense that we, we talked about, the, or, yeah, we talked about this already, a sense that toler toleration of the Talmud as a reflection of the general right of Jews to live according to Jewish teachings uh, was counterbalanced by limitation. Jews were not allowed to do that. And essentially what happened in the trial of the Talmud was uh, it was made clear that Jews had broken the limitation, lim uh, the set of limitations imposed on them. Lampooning the sacred figures of Christianity was not permissible. And uh, I would suggest, uh, for reasons that I can make clear in a couple of minutes, I would suggest that that was the most significant charge of all. In addition, there was evidence presented of anti-Jewish, anti-Talmudic -Tal statements that portrayed negatively and viciously Christians. That's a little murkier. Uh, the Talmuds of that time and contemporary Talmuds, well, no, less so contemporary Talmuds. The Talmuds of that time talked about non-Jews as goyim, members of the nations, the non-Jewish nations, and the accusers of the Talmud claimed that the term goyim should be understood as Christians. Here, there was a lot of room for the defenders of the Talmud to mount a significant defense and to say, no, no, no. The negative things said about Goyim were references to the pagans of antiquity and not Christians. Um, that was, I would suggest, a pretty effective line of Jewish argumentation. It couldn't save the Talmud because the clear evidence 
of ne negative statements about Jesus and the sacred figures of Christianity wasn't much. There was an occasional attempt to argue that it was talking about a different Yeshu, but that, that didn't work very well. To argue that Goyim shouldn't be understood as Christians, that was somewhat more effective. And that's important for uh, what we'll see as a major aftermath. Uh, in addition, I'm going to suggest there was a third line of argumentation that was interesting, may have swayed some of the people uh, in the jury, but it was very complicated. It was that essentially the Talmud represents a perversion of biblical truth. Um, it's an interesting reflection of anti-Jewish, anti-Talmudic thinking. But again, I'm going to say the same thing that I said about the issue of Goyim. Uh, it really wasn't necessary in order to find the Talmud guilty. Now, if you don't mind my picking up the reins of this, let me indicate that the story doesn't end at that point. <clears throat> the French kings continued to ban the Talmud. Jews were not permitted to have copies of this um, book that had been proven to be a, a breach of the limitations imposed on Jewish presence in a Christian society. Jews weren't permitted to have that book. There wasn't a tremendous amount of time left for uh, French Jewry altogether. These things took place in the 1240s. By 1306, the Jews were expelled from France. So the issue of the Talmud became a dead letter issue. Interestingly, Jews were permitted to return in 1315, didn't last all that long. They were permitted to return, and one of the stipulations of the return was that they could not have the banned book of the Talmud. It's important, I think it's valuable, to note Jewish activist responses. The Jews, the leaders of the Jewish communities, of Northern Europe altogether, banded together and laid a case before one of the later popes 
And the case was that, an interesting case, that Jews enjoyed, I'm going back to that basic church policy, Jews enjoyed the right to live as Jews safely and securely in a Christian society. These Jewish leaders argued that Jews, and, and it's an, I mean, it's a fascinating argument. Jews argued that Jews could not live as Jews without their Talmud. So in effect, banning the Talmud involved contravening the basic protection. Well, what do you do? If you have evidence of some kind of Jewish breaking the limitations through the Talmud on the one hand, and the claim that Jews can't live as Jews without the Talmud on the other hand, then the way out of it was pretty simple. Uh, take out the offensive material from the Talmud. In other words, let the Jews have, let Christian demand for limitations be accepted on the one hand, but allowing Jews at the same time to have all the rest of the Talmud. And that is the beginning of, let me call it the third option. If one option is simply to tolerate the Talmud and a second diametrically opposed option is to ban entirely the Talmud, there's a middle ground. Censor the Talmud. And that became uh, subsequently uh, the broad stance toward the Talmud that emerged through the latter centuries of the Middle Ages and the early centuries of modernity. The Talmud was censored. Uh, we know essentially how it was done. The manuscripts were taken. Sections to be eliminated were identified and they were inked over in a way that made them 100% illegible. Uh, there was a number of decades ago, a, uh, an exhibit at the New York Public Library of censored materials. And there was some Jewish materials. And it was fascinating to see. You could not make out anything uh, after this thick black ink was put over segments of a uh, of a piece of parchment. It's kind of like, you know, these days with so much material appearing on television, letters in sensitive areas with portions blacked out and you can't see. 
that's a legacy of the Middle Ages. Right, and that censorship obviously continued once much later on when books started being printed and then things were uh, the, the whole different thing right and then and 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 also you had uh, getting back to your other point from a while ago Gaim became akum because of this mazalus which was idol worshippers right pagans exactly uh two phenomena that people familiar with the talmud will be sensitive to the first is the elimination of these statements about Jesus and the sacred figures. You don't find them in the normal Shas. Uh, sometimes today in the freer environment, there'll be notes along the side of the page. Um, and secondly, to meet this issue of the meaning of the term Goy, it is exchanged for a term that leaves really no doubt. You know, one can argue about Christianity, and occasionally rabbis do, but to use a term like akum uh, is a, and you can see it comes out of the incident that we're talking about. Uh, it's a statement that says, don't think we're talking about Christians. So this is, and maybe this is a kind of a good culminating point. We're talking about a fairly brief and limited uh, incident that took place in Paris. It's not a world-shaking incident. It's a hugely painful incident, and we've talked about that in terms of the burning of vast quantities of Talmud manuscripts. So it's painful, and we have reflections of that pain. Uh, but in what I'm suggesting is that in a quiet way, it has very wide-ranging significance. The impact of what emerges as the ultimate church position which is not total toleration and not total destruction, but somewhere in the middle, censorship, uh, over the succeeding centuries, that's a palpable reality in the history of the Talmud, uh, at least in those segments of the world that were dominated by Christianity. Um, I know that we did not get to uh, the the players, so to speak, Rebichil of Paris and the other Balitaisis and Nicholas Dunnan and their history background. Um, that's all 
uh, written, uh, beautifully explained very well in your essay, a 90-page essay, and it goes through also all the charges that we discussed. And also there is a translation, like I said, in this volume of the some of the Latin texts and some of the Hebrew texts. And I believe your essay also talks about uh, are they historically accurate, the differences between the two, and there's an analysis on those. And, and also there's include, I should make mention that it also includes a, a kina, like a dirge written by the Marami Rothenberg, famous mayor of Rothenberg, who was witnessed this. He was a little younger um, at the time. So uh, this volume, I will just make mention, it's, it was, it's called The Trial of the Talmud in Paris in 1240 and was published by the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies. It's about $21 on Amazon. It's very affordable. About, it's about 200 pages, paperback. I'll post the link uh, in the podcast notes so um, everyone can check it out and, and, and read it. So uh, thank you very much, Professor Chazen, for joining me. I, and I, I, I really appreciate it.